Are you ready for this? I'm ready. <laughs> got your earbuds? Yeah, I got them in, so should be good to go. So I gotta ask you, because the podcast is called Behind the Wheel, are you always behind the wheel? Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. So living in Baltimore, in the inner city, I was present when the Freddie Gray riots occurred. Baltimore was actually the first city in America to come up with a essentially legal way to ban African Americans' property ownership within white residential areas. Transformation is a two-sided marketplace where we introduce artisanal and emerging uh, brands, mainly snack brands, to consumers at key moments where they're most engaged. Hi, I'm Derek, and this is Behind the Wheel, a show dedicated to highlighting the accomplishments of ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things in the community. Check us out on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcast. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, good morning, good morning. Good morning, you sound different. <laughs> I was listening to your um, your uh, podcast a little while ago. You got your headphones in? Yeah, I sure do. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good morning and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Wheel. I'm your host, D. Ivan Oxley, and today we are here with, I should put on my ascot before I introduce this individual, Dr. Shauna Payne Gold, she's the <laughs> Assistant Provost of Diversity and Inclusion at Townsend University. She's also a swim instructor and a mom. Give it up for Dr. Shauna Payne Gold. How you doing? How you doing? I'm doing well. Virginia, almost in West Virginia, 
Um, and so I went there undergrad. Um, I got a master's of divinity because I did not want to be a pastor, but I wanted to work with campus ministries in some way. And, um, and so I got my master's there. Then I went on and got a doctorate in higher ed from George Washington University. And all of that trajectory wasn't uh, clear. It wasn't straight as an arrow. I kind of fell into all of my work. Um, and campus ministry, unless you're connected to a church with a lot of money, uh, it's hard to do the work without a lot of funding. And so I transitioned from campus ministry work into um, multicultural student affairs. And so I became a, actually an associate director um, of a multicultural center. And three weeks after I started there, the director decided, you know what, I'm going home to have my baby and I'm not coming back. So congratulations, <laughs> you're now the director. I'm looking around like, what? Wait a minute. I don't even know what I'm doing right now. Um, and so, you know, I went on and, and kind of had to be self-taught in that world of learning more about diversity and inclusion work. And uh, so I read everything I could read. I was in a doctoral program, and so I read above and beyond what was in the actual program itself. I learned from everybody I could learn from, and um, that's kind of how I got here. And so part of the reason why I'm so big into mentorship, um, especially in my field, but also outside of that world, um, is because that's how I learned everything. I didn't go and get a degree in diversity, um, but I did a lot of side work in those areas. So um, that's what I did. But, you know, as many of us know who do this type of work on a regular basis, it's very heavy, extremely heavy. Um, and so I had to find something that really helped me to manage the frustration of working with people that don't get it or the frustration. So when you of say it's heavy for those... I'm sorry, for those who may not get it, like, what do you mean when you say it's heavy? Yeah, it, it's heavy. It, it's heavy because it's, you know, especially if you're like me, I've spent all of my own formal education as well as my professional education working at predominantly white institutions. And with that comes lots of struggle. And it's good struggle because I think it makes you resilient. But, you know, when you're trying to explain to faculty members that uh, you can't just use all uh, white books written by white folks, we need you to pull in some Latino folks and pull in some black folks and pull in some Asian folks into your readings and, and trying to get them to understand that students are outpacing uh, professors when it comes to who's diverse and who's not, who has a diverse background and who doesn't. And so students are demanding because they and their parents and their loved ones are footing the bill. And so it gets very heavy when you're trying to explain to others that, hey, diversity is important. It's inherent to what we do. Um, and in fact, we have evidence that shows that our own brains work better when we come from diverse perspectives and concepts. And so given that, um, diversity is inherently in what we do, um, but trying to explain to folks that this should be part and parcel with what they do every day is kind of tough. You know, if you were uh, trained at a an Ivy League institution and this really wasn't a thought about diversity, um, obviously it's going to be a big challenge. Even if you're interested in the work, it's still going to be a big challenge. And so um, that work gets heavy, you know, when you have students that come in and say, hey, I think I'm being discriminated against for these reasons and you're the person that has to resolve it, it gets heavy. Um, and so given that I had to figure out ways to kind of work through my own emotions so I wasn't internalizing all of that um, emotion that the faculty and students carry in their day-to-day -day work. So how did you start on the road to becoming a triathlete? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I, I am one of those people who's a witness that if you don't know how to swim right now, you can figure it out. <laughs> um, it, it is tougher than when you're a kid. Um, I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, and they swim right now better than I do because they have no fear at all. 
Um, but when I first started, I actually started out, uh, look, my, my running joke is all I wanted to do was a 5K, okay? I was 80 pounds heavier than I am right now. Um, I thought that running a 5K would be my big goal for the year, and so I trained for like 12 weeks for this 5K, thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be tough. I don't know if I can run this far for this long. And so I trained for that 5K, and it was a, I think it was an evening glow run out at the National Harbor that year. And I went out there and I ran that race, and after that, I was really hooked on it. And so, you know, it became another step towards something bigger. So I said, okay, well, now I think the ultimate goal may be let's try for a, a half marathon. And so tried for that. I did uh, Iron Girl Columbia that particular year, mm-hmm. and so that was my first half. And then um, I was thinking about doing a full, and in fact, I wanted the Marine Corps Marathon to be my, my first full. And, um, of course, that's as soon as you're getting fit and as soon as you get to your goal weight, then you find out, hey, you're having a baby. How about that? <laughs> um, so, um, I had to kind of postpone that goal. But um, one of the things that my doctor told me while I was pregnant with my second son was that, hey, you know, we know you're very athletic. And my doctor was even a, an Ironman. And so my doctor said, hey, I know you want to keep running and so forth, but that may be kind of tough on your organs. Why don't you think about swimming more? Mm-hmm. And I look at the doctor like, uh, no, I, I'm 30-something years old and barely will put my face in the water. So swimming ain't going to be the, the option here, okay? <laughs> and um, But the doctor said, no, just, you know, take some of the beginner, the adult beginner classes and just see how you like it. But it'll be much less strain on your body. And it was the most frustrating thing ever. I believe it took me about four months to swim a full lap uh, without stopping. Mm. Um, and it, it took a long time. It was, you know, four strokes and stand up, four strokes and stand up. And it was just, it was obnoxious. It was <laughs> humiliating. It was, and, and, you know, I'm the type of person where it's like, you know, the amount of work you put into something, you should get some results at some point. So four months was a long time for me to put in work almost every day swimming, and then finally it clicked. Uh, And so I had my son. I actually swam, I think I swam like 600 the morning before he was born. Wow. Um, And so I had my son, and then after that, um, you know, waited on the doctor to give me the green light to start back swimming. And so got back in the pool, ran, you know, ran, walked as, as much as I could. And after about three months, my youngest son, Kendrick, was three months old, and I did my first sprint triathlon, which was a pool triathlon. And I absolutely loved it. I loved the energy. I loved the, the positivity of it. Um, and I love the backstories, too. You know, when you hear about all the people that towed the line and what they went through just to get there, um, whether it's a cancer survivor or whether it was someone like me who had lost a lot of weight just to get there, people mm-hmm. who didn't know how to swim, all of that. Um, I really was so interested in the people and the stories behind triathlon, and so yeah. that's kind of how I got there and, and really have enjoyed it since. And then you, you seem to have, have, have <clears throat> meshed your professional world with with your, uh, your athletic uh, adventures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and I think what's interesting, um, there usually is someone that posts um, on a lot of our triathlete group pages, you know, should I include triathlon on my resume or my uh, curriculum vita or whatever they use as far as a professional portfolio? And most people say yes. And um, even as I encounter other people in my world of higher ed who are runners and so forth, 
it's interesting how many of them see the skills as transferable skills. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when when I train, especially when I'm training for a half, half iron, which is my longest distance thus far, when I train, there's nobody to kick me kick me in the behind and say, hey, you got to be up at 4 o'clock in the morning to get this done before work, before your kids wake up, before the kids have stuff to do after school. If you don't do it now at 4 or 5 in the morning, then it won't happen. So do you really want this or not? And, you know, having that internal will, that self-motivation to do it is a transferable skill because who wouldn't want somebody working for them who, you know, doesn't have to be handheld and doesn't have to be pushed to do things and they're resilient and, you know, self-directed. These are all transferable skills into the rest of the world. And so I I see now why people say, yeah, put that half iron on on your resume or put that Iron Man on there because there's so many different ways all of that bleeds into what you do on a day-to-day basis. I, I just don't see how you can be someone who's an, an Ironman or a marathoner and be lazy in other areas of your life. It, it's it's just who you are, probably part of your DNA, I would say. Yeah, and you're taking it a, um, a step further in, in, in corporate, you know, you're, as a speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, you were part of um, We Are Outspoken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love that group. You know, I actually wasn't even looking for that group in particular, but um, I had a friend, which a lot of the triathlon community knows, Sika Henry, who's my girl, um, who's uh, really on her quest to be the, the first African-American um, pro athlete uh, as a woman. And so she said, hey, girl, look, I'm going out here to this conference. They asked me to come speak. They said they wanted someone to come out and do a special um, session on diversity and inclusion. Would you Would you come out? And I said, absolutely, let's, let's work this thing out. And so I ended up uh, connecting with one of the co-founders, uh, Lisa Ingerfeld, who um, I think she's wonderful. And she's the type of person that you want as an ally to, uh, to all populations who are disenfranchised, whether it's disenfranchised by triathlon or endurance sports, any endurance sports. And so we connected and we co-presented uh, that particular year. And I have to say, the first year of Outspoken, was pretty amazing because, you know, when you start looking at the stats of women who aren't in triathlon and women that should be in triathlon and and all the challenges they face just getting the training done and so forth, there's really a inherent market for those women. And so if there can be ways that triathlon can be more welcoming to women, then that's how to do it. And so we started those conversations at Outspoken uh, out in Phoenix, and then they also had their second year this past year. Um, But I think it was a great way to kind of mesh together what's going on in the triathlon world, what's going on in diversity and inclusion, and asking the really hard questions about who is triathlon leaving out. And triathlon, you know, of course, we leave out a lot of folks, especially when it relates to socioeconomic status. You know, triathlon is not a cheap sport. It's just not. No. <laughs> yeah, it's not. I mean, you, you can do things, you know, you can have a, a very skinny budget and do things on the low end, but, you know, it's not an inexpensive sport. You know, we, my friend and I, who we train together, we jokingly say, oh, we remember those days where, you know, an $80 marathon was fantastic. Now it's like 200 to do a short distance triathlon. Um, and so, you know, knowing that, you know, that tells you who's included and who's not. Um, so it's no surprise to me when, you know, I go to a triathlon and a lot of that I meet there are um, very high performers in the professional world, attorneys and doctors and uh, engineers. And, I'll, well, you're the people that can afford to be in triathlon, so obviously you're here. 
And so, you know, with that, thinking about who's being excluded and how can we open things up in a way that includes as many people as possible, because I think, you know, once you get into the triathlon world, it just gives you this boost of confidence and motivation that trickles into the rest of your life. Yeah, I think that their triathletes seem to be type A personality, very driven. Yeah, I mean, and I've, so I've, I've gone to several events just to, to, to capture it. Uh, Absolutely. But you see, everyone is, you know, it's, it's, I think it's even a competition with the handshake. <laughs> exactly. You know, they've got, <laughs> they've got to put the handshake. Exactly, exactly. So it's, <laughs> that is so true. So it's, it's, it is something um, that, I, that I find very fascinating. As you said, it, it kind of bleeds into other aspects of your life. And, and it, you know, that driven personality and that drive to, to continue to succeed and, and, and yeah. do be the best without sounding like a cliche. Be right. The there you go. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> well, and you know, I think what's cool about it is that, you know, you do have the, the competitive people that are, you know, super fast and, you know, they're the ones that always want to be, you know, the top of their age group and everything. And then you got the people like me who are truly back of the pack folks. We will always be the people who are cutting it really close when it comes to Ironman cutoff times and so forth. But, you know, our goal was never to be first anyway. You know, our, our goal was simply to be uh-huh. better than the last uh-huh. race or better than the person we were 10 years ago or, you know, whatever that may be. And so, you know, I think that's what's cool about triathlon is that when, you know, when I go to races, and th- this is a funny quick story. Um, so my first half iron was uh, Ironman Atlantic City 70.3. And that was in 2017. And I remember standing in line. Now, of course, you're scared out of your mind. You know, it's like this is your first one and you've worked for months to to even come the line, much less finish. And I remember standing there with my friends and we're waiting to jump in the water. And the announcer comes on and says, hey, guys, we just want to let you know that our men's leader has already made it to mile 20 of the bike. And we hadn't even gotten in the water yet. And I'm thinking that that was my first sign that said, look, if you didn't know before now, now you know that you're not doing this to compete with nobody. You're here to compete with yourself, and that's it. Because everyone has their own goals and their own motivation for doing what they do. You know, I've had other friends that cried because, you know, they missed being at the top of the podium by two seconds as well. So, you know, everyone has their own reasons for what they do. And, you know, for me, being a person who was never a runner, who definitely wasn't a cyclist and learned how to swim at, what, 36 years old, just being out there is a huge accomplishment. And so I think, you know, everyone needs to walk in with their own goals and ideas for what they want. But at the end of the day, you're extremely competitive against yourself, for sure. Yeah, so you 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 went from not being able to swim to be being a certified level one and level two U.S. Masters yes. swim coach. Yes, and let me tell you how I got there. <laughs> um, that that's another funny story too, because if you aren't familiar mm-hmm. with the triathlon community, you will be whenever you hear the language of DNF did not finish. And uh, my first Olympic distance was actually Nations Tries, which was in, I believe, in 2015. And again, I had been out in open water, and I had been practicing and doing what I needed to do. Um, but there was a dock that I had to slide off of to get into the open water. And that dock was maybe about three or four feet up from the water. And that was one of the things, I think probably the only thing that I didn't practice before this triathlon. I had walked in from the shore, I had, you know, all, all kinds of things I had done, but 
I had never taken the plunge from a doc. And so I literally should have called it a DNS. It did not start because I was so freaked out <laughs> after jumping into the water. I just could not pull myself together. And so I ended up DNSing the race. And um, later on in the, the bike and run, I joined my good friend and training partner. I wanted to make sure that she finished. Um, but I, I didn't finish on record. And the very next morning, everyone who's close to me and has trained with me knows exactly what I did. The very next morning, I went back to my local pool, jumped in the water, and started training again for the next race. And then the very next week, I registered and said, okay, you have to conquer this fear of water, Sean. I said, you need to figure out all the tips and tricks and everything that goes along with understanding the water. And so I registered for um, a master certification out in Pittsburgh. And so I drove out to Pittsburgh and I took that training and I just continued to build on the training. And it was, it ended up benefiting lots of people that I now coach and, and teach how to swim, but it really was selfish in a way because it benefited me to get over my fears of water because I found that when I'm coaching other people or teaching other people that I don't have time to be afraid. I don't have time to over process or overanalyze what's going on. You know, even when I go out for an open water swim with some of my friends, I'm so busy working with them or, or swimming alongside them kind of as a swim angel that I don't have time to think about, okay, Shana, you're in murky water. It's probably 50 feet deep right here. I don't have time to think about that because I'm working with someone else and I want to make sure they feel secure in the water. And so it was a, a good out for me. Um, it's, I, I would not say it's an impressive accomplishment at all, but it definitely helped me to get over my fear of water. Yeah, and that was going to be one of your um, your, your your goals, I think. I guess in, in 2019 to to go and jump in to the deep end of the yeah. into open water. Absolutely. So I'm like, okay. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and um, now it it all sounds hilarious now because um, looking back, one of my favorite races I actually started doing in 2018 uh, is called Escape the Cape, and it's out in Cape May, New Jersey. And this is probably the most ridiculous thing that any triathlete should ever do. Um, but you get 2,000 of your friends on a ferry out in the middle of the Delaware Bay, and you jump off the ferry 12 feet into 20 feet deep water, and you swim your way back to start your triathlon. And okay. yes, yes. And I, at first, I was completely, well, I, I'm not even a, a person who's a, afraid of heights, I'm more afraid of depth. And so the jumping part wasn't the big deal to me. It's the part of, oh, once you hit the water, you got to remember that you got a whole lot of swimming and biking and running that you have to do after this. So keep your composure because you got stuff to do. And so escape the cave. Yes. Oh my. Oh, it's God. amazing. It's it's amazing. And so um, one of my uh, now good friends, uh, Steve Del Monte, is the race director, and so he did um, he did the, the race Escape from Alcatraz. And, and mm -hmm. Escape from Alcatraz is basically this, a similar con, uh, concept, but you're in the San Francisco Bay, and you're swimming away from Alcatraz, literally. And so he did that race and said, hey, I bet you there's a way that we can do this over in the East Coast. And um, his wife convinced him, hey, you need to check this out and see if you can do it. And so now he's in, I forget what year he's in now of uh, being the race director, um, but it was his grand idea, and now his race sells out within 12 hours every year. It, it's like a, a destination Oh, this race. is crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm looking at this um, this, this huge, cr yeah, this is not, this is, oh, yeah. this is insane. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and I have friends of mine who are, you know, they're Iron Man, you know, they've done a multiple full irons that they will not do this race <laughs> because of their fear of 
overthinking the jump. Um, and the jump is like all of three seconds, and then you're off to the races in a normal triathlon. And um, what sold me at first, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. But the uh, the first year when I saw a video, there was this woman that had come all the way from Mexico to Cape May, New mm-hmm. Jersey, to do this race, and she was afraid of heights. And now you know this is serious if you have sports psychologists standing on the edge of the ferry to talk you over if you're afraid of jumping. Um, and so this woman was uh, was Mexican and standing there, and you know the psychologist was talking to her and said, "Look, you came this far. You know, think about how proud you're going to make your family." for doing this, and, you know, and she just, you know, grinned and bared it, and you're either praying or you're cussing a lot, and you jump, and it's three seconds, and you're off to the races, and um, Mm -hmm. you are so proud of yourself. After you hit that water, you're like, I cannot believe I did that, (laughs) and then you want to do it again. (laughs) Do it again. Yeah, then you want to do it again, so this will be my my fourth jump in August. They had to postpone the date due to the coronavirus stuff, but... Um, this will be my fourth jump, and I'm super excited about it. You, you mentioned mm-hmm. you you wanted to you didn't want to be a pastor, and so you wanted to get into uh, I guess um, in, inside of inside of the schools mm-hmm. and diversity, yeah. and inclusion, mm-hmm. yep, for the LBGT, yep. yep, as well, absolutely. So now, how do you juggle the two divinity and LBGT? Yep, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good question because, you know, when I think about it, um, no, I never wanted to, you know, pastor a traditional church or any of that. Um, but what I found was that if you didn't have some type of counseling or psychology background, when I went into um, divinity school, I think what helped me as far as seminary was that it gave me some of those foundational skills. So when it comes to counseling and coaching and advising, um, that was a lot of the work that I did in seminary where it, it really focused on how do you support uh, college students when they're going through these major transitions. Now, how that connected to diversity and inclusion was that, you know, we kind of play oppression Olympics when it comes to certain things. You know, there's lots of different identities that we think about, but some of them are highlighted more than others. So, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, of course, we're going to talk a lot about race, and then we're going to talk about gender and so forth. But very rarely did we talk about um, faith or religion or spirituality, especially at public institutions. And what we found by the research is that most students, um, you know, they heavily rely on their spirituality and their religion and their value sets from their upbringing. They rely on that heavily to get through college. And so, you know, when they arrive that first year, they realize, oh, well, I was a valedictorian in high school, but now I'm like below average in comparison to how other people were prepared for college. They have to rely on their faith to get through school. And so, you know, oftentimes we as professionals in higher ed don't really talk about religion or diversity um, in those ways because oftentimes the professionals themselves are uncomfortable with those conversations. and They haven't really done any personal reflection around these topics. And so, um, you know, I think it provides us with a great opportunity to serve students better. Um, I also think, too, that as we further diversify students in college, they bring all of those faith and value sets. So you will need to know what it means to be Sikh, for example, or um, to be uh, Muslima or whatever it may be, or even to be agnostic and atheist. What does that mean? And so, um, you know, how students bring their whole selves to college and, and it helps them through to the end, I think that's important. And so it's an area that um, kind of goes underserved. And so uh, for me, it was a great mesh between
now how, how are you uh, managing uh, teaching and training at home and uh, I guess school? Yeah, it's yeah, tough. Uh, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> well, you know, I was just talking about uh, talking about this topic with a colleague yesterday from Virginia Tech who's still trying to push his research forward. And what we were talking about was that, you know, we have just as much work, if not more work, but it's also without boundaries, you know, so I can get on the phone right now and have a conversation with the provost and then hang up the phone and the boys want to go up and down the sidewalk in their scooters <laughs> or, you know, I'll come back and I have to be, you know, the lunch lady for a little bit and then I'll go back to writing my report. So, you know, there aren't really any boundaries in the work that we're doing currently at home. Um, and so for me, I've kind of switched my schedule because I've spent years um, waking up at four or five o'clock in the morning to get my workouts done before life happens. Um, now that I don't have to get up as early and I don't have to make the commute to work every day, which I have a very long commute, um, now I'm trying to take advantage of not having to get up as early. So like people, my friends are shocked that I say, oh, I get up at seven o'clock in the morning now due to coronavirus. They know that's late for me. They know I've already probably done two workouts and halfway to work by seven o'clock most mornings. And so um, for me, I've uh, switched my schedule up so that I'm actually working out in the evenings. And that's really helped me to stay balanced. It's helped me to sleep well at night. Um, but I have to say it's not easy. And I think, too, in the higher ed world, it's not easy either because a lot of folks kind of underestimate how tough it's been to make this pivot between teaching face-to-face -face and teaching online. And so, you know, for us now, especially since in the state of Maryland, we're kind of waiting on Governor Hogan to make some decisions. So we have to be prepared. We don't know whether we're teaching online or face-to-face -face in the fall, so we have to be prepared for both. So that's kind of like preparing two classes at the same time. That's kind of tough work. And so, you know, we're managing as best as we can, but, you know, I, I always hesitate to sound like a complainer because, you know, I have a lovely home. I, my house is stocked up with food. We got plenty to do, and those checks are still rolling in, so I'm grateful and humbled. Um, but it, it's not easy. So there, there's just two things left I want to uh, know. One is 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 this uh, this dessert breakfast that you use to fuel your runs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you got to put the, uh, the 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 recipe online. Oh yeah, for sure. Because that sounds that that sounds that sounds. I don't know if people people don't because I haven't talked about it. Chocolate chip <laughs> cookies with what? Bananas and graham cracker protein powder. Oh my goodness. So I, I discovered that this was a few, let's see, a couple of years ago. And I was using the protein powder because it was really helping me as far as muscle strength and so forth. And I was getting back into my strength training and all. And I was just sick of the oatmeal for breakfast. I was sick of the banana for breakfast. I mean, enough is enough. You know, I need to switch it up a little bit. And so, um, and so I had these, uh, this recipe and decided to make these chocolate chip muffins, and they had bananas and also put in the protein powder. And I, they're like dessert. I mean, you know, they're ooey gooey and just you feel wrong eating it in the morning. I mean, that's just how good it is. <laughs> and so, and, I, and what I found with my performance, too, because like I mentioned before, you know, when you're waking up really early to work out, you know, I, I have a metabolism that's just off the chain. So, you know, by the time I get to work, I've probably already had two breakfasts at this point. But I needed something because those early morning workouts were going a 
have and then go for a run or whatever it may be. And oatmeal and a banana wasn't cutting it. You know, halfway through the workout, I'm ready to cut somebody because I'm so hungry. And so um, I started with these muffins, and I'm like, oh, my God, they are so they, – they were the only thing that helped me to get through two-hour or longer workouts. And from there, I started using them for my long weekends. And so, you know, if you had, you know, five or six hours of training on a Saturday, and you need something to get you, you know, at least through the first half of that workout. And so these muffins save the day, and so I keep them in my back pocket as far as a, a recipe is concerned. If I need something quick that – I can make one big batch on the weekend and then it lasts throughout the week, then that's perfect. But that has been my true go-to when you get sick and tired of the old oatmeal and whatnot, then I, I had to switch it up a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to be looking forward to, to that, seeing that, that recipe post. You can send Absolutely. Because I, 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 I definitely, I've got, I, I can make four at a time. That's all I need. I, I, I don't Absolutely. Need the whole week, yeah, I, yeah, the whole week might be a bit much. I got you. But Shauna, the, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Dr. Gold, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to be with us. And how can people find you? They want to uh, to access your, your consulting services and everything that you that you do, where would they go to? Absolutely. Uh, to track Absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn, Shana Payne Gold. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Gold Enterprises, LLC. Of course, you can reach out to me personally as well, but I'm always on the social media platform, Dr. Gold Speaks as well. And so, um, yes, I look forward to hearing from folks, and I'm so grateful that uh, you took the time to talk with me. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your Thank day. Thank you. You do the same. Bye-bye now. All righty. Bye-bye.